Welcome to the 238th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have an astounding show for you today. Kevin was at the Google event yesterday, so you're going to hear all about that. So much news. And then we're going to talk about a new lock company that's come on the scene. Plus, we've got some news bits about, oh, you guessed it, IoT security. And new light bulbs from LifeX, and an update on Hitachi because they had a conference last week and announced a bunch of new customers and products around their IoT services business. Plus, you're going to hear from our sponsor, Nutanix. And then you're going to hear from Azar Hussein, who is the CEO of Hanha. They have a new product called Parcel Live that tracks mail all around the world. It's very interesting. And they have a couple other things they're going to talk about. So stay tuned for all of that and more. But first, a message from one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is HiveMQ. As many of you know, MQTT has become the de facto standard for IoT. HiveMQ helps companies connect IoT devices to the cloud using MQTT. Companies such as Audi, BMW, Acer, and SiriusXM are using HiveMQ to build their IoT solutions. They rely upon HiveMQ to provide an MQTT platform that is reliable and can scale to meet the demands of millions of connected devices. You can find out more about HiveMQ at HiveMQ.com or check out their open source project on GitHub. Okay, Kevin. I know, you must be exhausted. Are you tired? Wait, what? What hmm? did you say? Wake up, Kevin. Wake up. <laughs> More coffee. <laughs> we're uh, going to only leave you awake for a little bit, and then you can go back to sleep. But okay, tell us about yesterday. So much news. So much news, yes. Um, some of it we won't cover because it's not relevant to the show, such as the Pixel phone, the Pixel book, etc., but most of it really was. And, you know, a bunch of devices. And I think what I'll do, thankfully, I tweeted about them. So I have them in order. So it'll be just like you're at the show. Ooh. Just like. But shorter. But shorter. Yes. And cheaper because you won't be able to buy anything yet. But but I want to talk about the theme. Just I want to throw it out there. We'll do the devices and then maybe we'll come back to the theme if that's okay. No, that sounds like a perfect English school kind of way to do this. So thematic right. statement. All right, then. Uh, the theme, which basically Rick Osterloh, the head of hardware at Google, set the tone right up front. And it was all about ambient computing and on-device processing. That's all I want to say about that for now, even though we've spoken about these things in the past, because the devices really tell the story, and then we can weave it all back together if that's all right. So the first thing they brought out was the Pixel Buds. These are truly wireless earbuds. Long battery life, five hours of battery life and like 24 with the charging case. They do have the Google Assistant built in. That's really the big thing here. Yeah, sure. They're great for music and so on and so forth. But again, it's a hands-free OKG experience. You can't buy them yet. They will be available next year for $179. Some of this, some of the equipment that they brought out, some of the devices is not quite ready to be sold yet. So. And you had the original Pixel Buds, and you did not like them. Oh, my God. I sent them right back. They were not comfortable. They were too big. They were ugly. I mean, the ugly I could handle. But these look much 
they they look actually a lot like um maybe it's the Sony. They look kind of like the Jabra's, but they're a little longer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these look much better. Yeah, I would say these look like two Jabra earbuds. Um, and Google, all throughout the event, um, brought in their design people, and they would talk about the way they've you know made you know a zillion prototypes of things to make sure that they are fit well and they look good on Stacy. So. Oh, I can't believe they thought of me. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That must be that personalization they're working on. Okay. So one other bit of smarts in there, um, they have something called adaptive sound because these go in your ears. These are kind of like the rubber tips that go in your your canal. So since it's a blocking sound from your ear canal, these have adaptive sound is what Google is calling it. So it auto adjusts the volume based on environmental noise. So if you're walking down the street in New York City, like I was yesterday, it gets really noisy. It'll turn your music up, which is nice, but you might not hear the cabbie that is going to drive into you. So a little bit of smarts in there. That's a compromise. And that actually sounds like um, they have their adaptive sound thing in the Google Hub Max, the original big fat speaker that kind of read the room and it changed the sound quality. We don't say fat. Let's not fat shame the device. (laughs) It was big. Yes. The point is- It was Max. It was Max. All right. So it sounds like they're working a lot with that. And we thought that was actually a really cool kind of in that ambient- smarts kind of feature yes a lot like that okay so what else we've got earbuds we went to the next products next and um some really interesting one interesting stat according to google so far nest products have saved 41.6 billion kilowatt hours of energy i thought that was impressive I don't know if it's true, but it's impressive. I have issues with their. I knew you would. (laughs) Oh yes, I'm I'm not against it, and I do believe it saves some people energy. But as someone who works from home, it never saved me the energy it was supposed to save me because I was always there. So I mean, I get why, but I'm also kind of like it doesn't uh, save because you're always there. (laughs) I know, I know. Anyway, yes, yes. Anyway, so we have a new Nest Mini. So the old Google Mini is gone, rebranded. I have a Nest Mini in my hand. It is $49. I believe you can order it now. Yes, you can order it as of the event. Uh, so it is less expensive, although they always seem to go on sale. So for what that's worth, they're touting the wall mounting. There's a little screw slot in the back of it, which we knew from the FCC filing, but I do like the idea of being able to wall mount these. Twice the bass sound for your music. They went from two microphones to three microphones, but here's the big deal to me anyway. There's a dedicated machine learning chip for local processing. Yes, that is super exciting. And that's a Google design chip, right? You know, I believe it is because they had shown some of the chip designs that they had in prototypes and whatnot. Uh, So I suspect yes. That's kind of one of the things that we'll be looking for going forward in devices because these chips are going to be optimized to run models at the edge. And this is actually something we talked a lot about at the ARM event that I was at last week. This will be something that is awesome, one, for latency, but two, privacy. Yes. And three, even, think about like energy and bandwidth savings, too. So mm-hmm. it takes a lot less energy to process something on a, a dedicated processor at the site. So They didn't get into this, but I... I'm anticipating that this will also mean in certain cases, your smart home will work by voice command, even if your internet is out. Yes. So important. Yes. 
That's the Nest Mini. And of course, again, I did not get to test it yet, but we will have a write-up on this for sure. Uh, one quick fact, the, again, design people came in and said, from a sustainability standpoint, we are using recycled plastic bottles for the mesh cover. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't look any different than last year's mesh cover. So they have done a great job. Uh, one two-liter bottle gives them enough material to make two Nest Mini covers. So good on them. Yay! They're really mm-hmm. hitting the sustainability thing, which I think is probably, it may be the next privacy. Once we solve this whole privacy thing that we're working so hard on right now. Sustainability, yeah. I mean, because these devices are, they're not as throwaway as, you know, no. a tile, but they are kind of throwaway devices. Mm-hmm. So also there are new Nest Aware plans. There's a Nest Aware Basic plan at $6 a month and Nestaware Plus for $12 a month. These cover all the devices in your home. So if you want to kit your house hogwile with a ton of Nest stuff, you're not going to pay per device or for five or 10, et cetera. The plans cover everything. And the difference here in the pricing has to do with how long the event video history is stored. For the basic plan, it's 30 days. For the Aware Plus plan, it's 60 days, and you also get access to your 10-day 24 by 7 video history. And that raised a question with you right before the show. Oh, yes. I did not realize that these cameras were recording 24-7. Yes. And and the only reason I knew that is because I've gone into the, my app and I've scrolled back through my history just to see if it's working properly, catching people and movement and so on. And I can sit and scroll and see nothing for hours if I want. But yeah, they are. I can spend the time that I, I was spending doing other things, watching video of other people <laughs> doing other things. Yep. So one more Nest item and we knew this back in April. <laughs> That's because Kevin is amazing. Well, no, it's because the FCC has loose lips. (laughs) Back in April, we did see an FCC filing and some code for, uh, I found code in the Chromium commit log that Google works all their their magic in for their software. And I saw Mistral, the the device named Mistral. And sure enough, Mistral is the new Nest Wi-Fi. There's a couple interesting bits here. Because of the way they've redesigned this, and it's actually two devices now, currently the Google Wi-Fi is just... The devices all look the same, right? There are two devices now. Nest Wi-Fi is a, there's a Nest Wi-Fi router. There's a Nest Wi-Fi point, which is your access point. The router is simply a router. The access point can't be used as a router, but is also a Google Home slash Google Assistant speaker. I'm thrilled by that because I remember about a year ago saying it's time to combine these Google Home products with the Wi-Fi products. You can pre-order these already. They will be available on November 4th in eight countries. You get a two-pack, one router and one point for $269, a three-pack, one router and two points for $349. Before you buy any of these, they touted the better range, increased range, and the fact that they can cover more square footage with fewer devices now. So if you bought three Google Wi-Fis, for example, because you have maybe a 3,000 square foot home, you maybe get away with one Wi-Fi router and maybe one point. So there's a little, oh, I call a small web app when you buy it. You can select what your home size is and so on, and they'll recommend what you should have. Nice. Now, does this have Wi-Fi 6? It does not. Okay. See, and this is, this is again, kind of, I felt like we kind of knew this because- We did. Google was like, eh. Yeah. Eh. But it, it does have support for Thread. No functionality yet, according to the product page. 
So that's still happening. All right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still in the works, I guess. But not works with Nest. Okay, we're going to talk about yeah. that too, but not yet. <laughs> exactly. And after the Nest stuff, they did show some Project Soli bits, which the only device that has it is the new Pixel 4 and Pixel 4 XL, which you can pre-order. And I know we don't talk about phones, but... But wait, we got to tell people what Project Soli is first. We do. You can tell them because you you okay. love Soli. I do love Soli because Soli is radar. And it's radar that's able to detect really fine, tiny motions. And in my humble opinion, this type of technology is going to be everywhere in the IoT. We're already seeing it. Uh, TI actually has a 60 gigahertz radar chip that you can use in factories and industrial to track where robots are so they don't run into people and they can find things. And it's very exciting. We also have this sort of technology used in the home for detecting falls. So what I think with Project Soli is I'm not so keen on it in the home, but I really do want to see it inside devices. I was really disappointed that it wasn't going to, that it's not in the, the latest Google smart display, because mm -hmm. I think having these, the ability to gesture at your house is, or gesture at things in your house is going to be a very useful UI interface. That's a user interface interface. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like RAM memory in your exactly, computer. Exactly, or an ATM machine. Yeah, you're right. The only device that has it right now are the new Pixel 4 and 4XL. And I don't want to get into the phone too much, but I do have a Pixel 4XL review unit, and I have already set up the face unlock, which is the new way to unlock the phone. There's no more fingerprint sensor. And Project Soli is used partly with that face unlock because, and, and actually the Verge got some time with some of the Google folks about what Soli brings. Soli kind of builds a little contextual bubble around the phone. So because that radar chip isn't just dead on straight, it can kind of angle out as well. And the way it's used with the phone is like I have the phone sitting on the desk right here. If I go to pick up the phone, the radar chip is already sensing my hand coming to the phone. So it fires up the routine for the face unlock. Then when I pick the phone up, it's already running and the face unlock happens much faster. This is great for power saving. So uh, yes. The Soli stuff doesn't require a lot of juice. So what you do is you detect when you need to wake up the facial recognition. The processor that's doing the real work of, oh, is this actually the person? That doesn't need to run all the time. So you're like, oh, psst, get up. It's time. And then it's like, yeah. okay. And then it runs and goes to sleep. According to the to the Google folks that The Verge spoke to, um, Soli brings presence, reach, and gestures. There are one or two gestures with this phone. I You can swipe left and right through audio to switch songs, or you can snooze an alarm or shut it off or dismiss calls. So it's early stages. I want to see what they're going to do, but unfortunately, it looks like it's Google that's going to have to do it because this is not yet available to third-party developers to take advantage of. Did you feel like you were living in the future, like a good future when you were using it and testing it out? Yes. From a technological standpoint, yes. From a practicality standpoint, no, because swiping here and there over the phone to change songs, eh, you know, it's just, I'm waiting to see the real use cases for it, especially in the home. Yeah. I'm like, maybe if your phone is on the counter while you're cooking dinner, you can just be like, I know you don't cook. Kevin's like, ha ha ha, my <laughs> microwave dinners don't require me to do anything, but okay. Well, that's not true because the June oven does alert me that my fo my food is ready and I could swipe the notification away in the air. So, 
Ooh, ah. The thing is, I don't know how much they can do with this in the home because, to my knowledge, they're limiting, at least on the phone, range to between one and two feet. So they would have to tweak it. And uh, and does it work over like a 10-foot radius? I don't know. Mm, no, it doesn't because that, that's pretty high. It's 60 gigahertz. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see where this ends up or not. I want to talk about an update on the death of Works with Nest. And now it is called Works with Assistant. Because <laughs> this they did not talk about, but it's something they also announced yesterday. And because we get so many, we still get comments on this. And Oh, yeah. It's, it's not the most awesome program. So back in May, you guys probably remember, Google said at I.O. that they were going to kill Works with Nest. And they just were going to shut it down. <laughs> and instead, everything was going to go through Google Assistant. And people rightly were like, what? Hey, uh, G, work, turn Works with Nest off. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so people, people said, ah. And then Google said, yeah. oh, okay, our bad. You can keep works with Nest stuff if you want, but you're not going to get the future updates and blah, blah, blah. And at the time, we talked about why this was happening. It was because Google needed to lock down access to data coming from the home. The fact that every Nest device could be its own brain really meant that they had a lot of things. They had a lot of devices they had to account for when dealing with integrations and who had access to data, right? And that was inconvenient and less secure. So they brought it all under works with Assistant. So what they're telling us now is that <laughs> there are basically three updates to works with Google Assistant. One is they're creating something called the Device Access Program that allows qualified partners, and that means those that pass an annual security exam, to access and control the Nest devices. So things like your Amazon Echo will still be able to directly control your Nest thermostat. So beforehand, we were like, oh, no, you're going to have to go through Google Assistant to control it, but that's not the case anymore. So you're still going to have those one-to-one -one connections, provided that the thing that is connecting to has passed Google's security exam. And I think this is good. It's, it's kind Absolutely. of a pain that you're going to have to reset everything up, but this is actually not a bad idea. And then the other two things, Google is going to make some routines that allow that incorporate Nest devices. And that means Nest devices can trigger a routine like they have historically been able to do and that people were like, oh, they're taking that away and that sucks. So now Google's saying, no, no, we're going to have that. We're going to build routines today. And then we're going to let other providers, again, reputable providers, third-party providers build routines as well. So that's good. The Google creator routines are going to arrive first, and then the partner routines will come later next year. So yay. And mm -hmm. when you're doing those routines, Google's going to give you a list of like, hey, you're going to allow this company to see the following information from your camera or from your thermostat, and you're going to opt into everything. And so this is actually really proactive and good on a privacy front. And Google's going to have all your data, but you can say, oh, maybe I don't want sketchy third-party routine thing to have that particular data. And you'll be able to see it. And then for people like us, and probably most of you guys, Google is going to let smart home enthusiasts have something called direct access for individuals. And that's going to let you directly control your own devices for your own private integrations. 
There is not a lot of information about this. I've reached out to Google to find out more. So I want to know if this is all going to be local on our devices. I want to know how this works. I want to know when this is going to happen. And right now I don't have any of that. But it does sound exciting for people who probably listen to this show. Keep an eye on this space for more because I'm hoping to tell you more about direct access for individuals. And just to add to that, only because you mentioned privacy, I noticed something last night on the Google store when looking at uh, the Google Nest Mini. There is a whole page, and it's a lengthy page, dedicated to privacy. And it looks like Google has tried very hard to tell you everything you need to know about privacy from their Google Home cameras, microphones, sensors, and Wi-Fi data, because they have products in that entire space. There are tons of Q&A or frequently asked questions, but it's very, very, in fact, I'd say crystal clear on what they're doing with what data uh, in terms of advertising, in terms of sharing and so on. I mean, they spend a lot of time here and I just wanted to point that out. So yes. And this sort of thing, Amazon has it now, they call it the privacy hub. I should probably, maybe I'll write something up to explain to everybody how you, how you find this information and why you should go look at it. So Mm -hmm. I think that's mostly it for the Google information. Kevin? It is, but I want to real quick get back to that theme. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about the theme. Good essay structure skills. I, I teased it, and then we talked a lot about the devices. But Google actually set the stage for all of this back at I.O. in May. That's when they said, hey, we've been able to take our machine learning models and cram hundreds of gigabytes of data down to a small amount. It's not the actual model, it's the actual data that they have learned from the models. And they are pushing it down to the devices now, to the phones, to the Google Nest, I'm sorry, not Google Nest, but the Nest Mini and so on. That's what's going to make all that onboard processing happen, that and the chip so fast and so accurate. And so far, just in my testing, I do find things more accurate in speech with the new phone. Additionally, they've really made a change here in terms of the software. And, and I wrote an article about this right after the event. And I my bottom line was, yes, there's tons of sensors. You need sensors for all this. You need silicon for the smart home. You need cameras. You need microphones. You need all of those inputs but you also need a system to take the ambient signals from all of these devices. You got to put it together so that the right things happen in the home at the right time. And that's the new Google Assistant. And they're calling it on stage the updated or new Google Assistant, but it's not saying that on the product. So you may buy a device with the updated Google Assistant because it's got the ML chip, such as the Nest Mini or the new phone. I anticipate some of these new things will come to older devices, but they have truly unified their products now with a system. And that is Google Assistant. Woo! Kevin and I, we go way back and we have been talking about this. I mean, I remember I remember you writing something about this in like 2013. I think it was like tied to Context. the watch. Yes. It was. Yeah. So Context is king. Yes. We are excited. That was 2013. And 2017, I was saying, when is the smart home going to be smart? Because we need, we don't have that, the software brains to make things happen. And and now we're starting to see that. Because, and we had to wait for certain technologies to come into play, but the software is also there now. And I'm, I'm super thrilled. Me too, because Lord knows, I hate carrying a phone everywhere with me. <laughs> Oh, spe- get some new pixel buds. <laughs> Speaking of context, next week, I'm just going to tease this for you guys. I got the IntelliThings Room Me sensors. They arrived late last night because my FedEx Ooh. guy comes at like 630, but still comes. Thanks, FedEx. 
So next week, you're going to hear all about context because we're going to play with those things and find out what's going on. All right. Other news in the world of IoT. Level Home. You may not have heard of this company because it just launched yesterday with $71 million (laughs) in funding. But this is a new lock company, a smart lock company. I guess the biggest distinction here is it is a lock that looks like any lock. You won't see it. Yeah, it's a smart lock that looks like any lock. So all of the batteries and radios and everything you need is crammed into the normal deadbolt interface. It's a very pretty... The door. I mean, it's it's it, literally where the circular cutout is for your knob. It fits in the door right there. Yeah. And in the deadbolt itself, the battery goes inside the yes. deadbolt. So yes. everything's crammed in there. It's very pretty. As one would expect, these guys, they did have a history at Apple, among other companies. And the interesting thing about the Level Home Lock is they've got partnerships with Lennar Homes and Walmart. And Lennar is a backer. It's a funder of this company. And they have a really good smart home effort that they're trying to build. And they've built it so far around Madam A. And they had started with Apple then moved to Madam A. And I should probably check with them and see what the, where the heck they are now on that, um, <laughs> because <laughs> maybe they're building their own stuff now. So with deals like this, uh, the Walmart partnership is interesting because now Level is going to be the partner for in-home delivery of Walmart groceries. So access to that. That used to be August. And now it's going to be this This is a new business model. They've got a new business model Mm -hmm. associated with this. So the lock itself costs $249, which is totally within range of a smart lock. But Mm -hmm. it could cost $49 for Walmart to actually come in, send a tech out to install it for you. And then for $20 a month, you get the lock plus the in-home delivery service. And that's launched in three cities now. Um, You can also get a, a garage door opener. And we actually wrote about that a while back because we found an FCC filing for it. But this is Walmart answer to the Amazon key program. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting, this idea that we'll give you everything you need. And, you know, here's basically Walmart Prime. (laughs) Yeah, for 20 bucks a month. That comes with a smart lock or a smart garage door opener. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many people take them up on that $20 a month for the delivery. I I don't know. I mean, uh, I think Amazon has a a stronger foothold here for that type of plan and service. Also, just to note, since this is HomeKit, I I have to assume this is a Bluetooth lock because it runs on a single battery. And that makes sense because most people do not. I mean, especially in the Walmart world, you're trying to appeal to the masses. You're not going to want a Zigbee hub in these things. That's that's crazy talk. Okay. So that's level home. I just wanted to bring up though, because the smart lock world is fraught with failures. The most recent was auto. I don't know if you remember that one. It also actually was a beautifully designed lock that I think had the interface of a regular lock or footprint of a regular lock, but it was $700 (laughs) and they died. And then there was way early on something called the Goji lock And that was hideously ugly, but it also died. So I just wanted to throw out, you know, some failed locks in the world because it feels like, do we really need another lock company? Walmart, Lennar, and Level Home suggests we do. Well, I would say we need something more innovative. And I think Level Home has done that because they have essentially hidden 
the lock, right? There's no, you come to my front door and you, you know, I've got a smart lock. There's got a big old keypad out there and a big old base on the back of it when you're inside. This is invisible, essentially. Yeah. So we'll see if we'll see more invisible locks. <laughs> How can you see an invisible lock, Stacey? <laughs> okay, right. I can't believe I said that. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I thought you were the one who's supposed to be tired. All right. Other news. LifeX are, are they our favorite colored bulbs? They're really good colored bulbs. I, They're I, up there. Yeah. I mean, you don't like the hue because they come with the hub. LifeX do not. They have launched a brand new product. They have launched the candle color. And this is a candelabra style light that has color. They call it polychrome technology. It has 26 customizable zones on the light. So you can create kind of a flickering flame effect that has different colors in the bulb. I don't know how to explain this. Am I explaining this well? I'm looking at the the product page right now, and, and I guess it's because of that polychrome technology. They can have multiple colors at one time to make it look like a flame. So that's interesting. Yeah. You know, people love their LifeX bulbs. The Wi-Fi functionality, the color choices they have, their, their color is very rich on these. Yeah. They are expensive. The, I was just going to say, you know me. I'm the budget guy here. Watching the budget. $45 for a little candelabra Edison screw bulb. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, most wow. most things that have these, like I had a fixture that had these style of lights and it required nine. So, you know, that would be a lot. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I only say that because if you have a candelabra bulb or a chandelier or something, even a small one, you know, you might need like four, six, eight of these to... That's a lot. That's probably more than the fixture. <laughs> oh, no. My fixture was fancy. But yes, I mean, I would be, I would be in the $400 range for my light bulbs. Mm -hmm. But hey, they last forever. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> They do say that they last for 22.8 years, and they are dimmable. So color-changing, dimmable. If you're in the market for something like this, it's pretty neat. And I think it's going to be kind of a pain to program, but those 26 addressable zones plus all the colors, I'm like, oh. Mm -hmm. But you do you, and I do think it'd be kind of a fun toy. So throwing that out there for you in the world. They are pre-order right now, but they will ship October 21st. And, oh, hey, look, it's the security section of the podcast. Let's talk about <laughs> honeypots. Honeypots. We've talked about honeypots before. Um, and these are, for folks who are not aware of what a honeypot is, basically a device or a server, something that's online that's set up to attract hackers. That way you can learn what techniques they're using. And then on your real devices, your protected, hopefully devices, you can make adjustments so that they will not become hacked. And Kaspersky actually puts out honeypots and, and uses that data to talk about what's being attacked, what types of viruses, what products, where they are, et cetera. And today they have their report out for the first half of 2019 with honeypots. And it's all, all the data that I've seen so far is only based on Telnet. So keep that in mind when I tell you that the honeypots went from 2018, the first half of 2018, from like 28 million attacks to 105 million attacks on IoT type honeypots all over Telnet. So that is atrocious, atrocious. Um, there's tons of good data in this report that we don't have time to get into, but that's the main takeaway, and, and we'll link to the report in the show notes. So turn off Telnet. Okay. I feel like we said yes. that last week. 
We might be we saying did. this again. Who knows? All right. And then I just wanted there was a there was another conference last week that I did not go to because I was at my Smart Kitchen Summit in the ARM conference, but Hitachi had a conference and Hitachi has a big IoT platform. Hitachi Vantara is the whole IoT effort. Lumata is the data effort that just names. Don't even worry about it. But the big news items from there that I thought were interesting and worth talking about is they've improved their dashboarding for dealing with data. And this, again, ties to the fact that when you are a big company and you're bringing in all of this IoT data, it can be really hard to parse and understand what's happening. So they've built better, they've improved their way of showing normal people how the data affects their lines of business. And that's important. The other thing they've done is they've launched some new products. They have the Lumata Data Services, Lumata Data Lake, and Lumata Edge Intelligence. And all of this is basically software that helps manage your data. And I hate to say this end to end. Ah, (laughs) it's no fun, but that is really what's happening. I don't want to go too far into it. I'll probably do something in the newsletter around it. The Lumata Data Lake is interesting because it is trying to, a data lake is basically you shove all of your business data in one place and they call it a data lake, right? The smart aspect of this is it optimizes like what data you're going to use and stores it based on what it thinks is going to be used. And then it pulls out the right data intelligently. And I'm putting that in quotes because I don't understand how this works. It sounds good in theory, which is why I want to understand more deeply how it works is how they're making, I'm I'm assuming they're using models. So machine learning to determine which data needs to be pulled at what time. This sounds so nuts and bolts, but it's really important because otherwise... Mm -hmm. You grab the data you need, your needle in a haystack that you need for what you're doing at that moment, you've got a problem. Yeah. Why bother at that point? And then they also did a deal with Disney. So Hitachi is going to be the back end for Walt Disney World in Florida and Disneyland in California. And they're going to use their data management, the Hitachi data management and analytics and IoT platform to pull real-time insights about what's happening in the park and And there's a ton of data there because they being Disney, people may not realize how many sensors and cameras and other input devices that they use to see what's going on where. So it's a massive amount of data, far more than you'd realize. Yeah. And I don't know what Disney's going to do with it. I hope it's like, hey, make my experience better at the park. And I'm sure that's part of it. But it's also things like ride maintenance. And I don't even know. The Disney folks are very sophisticated connoisseurs of data. That's kind of the big news from that particular conference. And now it sounds like it's time for the IoT Podcast Hotline. What do you think, Kevin? Absolutely. Okay. The IoT Podcast Hotline is sponsored by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. So you can learn more at Afero. And everyone, if you would like to participate in the IoT Podcast Hotline, give us a call at 512-623-7424, and you will be entered to win this month a Wise Camera and a Wise Sense platform. So, very fun. Give us a call. Send us your question. This week's question is from Rodney. Let's hear it. Hey, guys. I'm considering selling my house, and I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should ask the realtor to include the smart devices as part of the listing. Any advice would be great. Thank you. Oh, Rodney, I have been in your shoes. 
So here was the advice I got from my realtor. I removed anything that I removed all my light bulbs that could be removed. And the unfun part is you have to do this really early on in the process. So you're like stuck with kind of a dumber house than you're used to for like three Mm -hmm. months. But so I removed all of that. I left anything that was installed in the walls. So the light switches I did because I have, because I test things out, I had a mix of light switches. So I changed all of my light switches to the Lutron light switches and I installed those everywhere and took out all the mix and match just to be nice to people. Um, I would recommend doing something like that. If you have a big, wide variety of brands, I would keep it to five brands feels reasonable, maybe. So I I kept all of those in. I kept the thermostats, the two different thermostats in. I actually kept my Madam A water faucet thing. And I did that because it was a fun story to tell about the house. In the words of my realtor, this is not something I would think. But it helped people remember the house, even if they didn't want to, you know, oh, what about that house with the the smart water faucet, we should buy that one. Yeah, they'll tell their friends about that yeah. when they talk about the house, you know, and that stands out for sure. So we kept all of that. We kept the smarts associated with the shades because, and they were super complicated, so I don't think they're ever going to get used, but we did keep that in there. And my the buyer of my house had their own CDA person who was going to come in and work with all of the stuff. So that's something to consider. I kept light switches. I kept the faucet. I kept, oh, I kept the connected garage door opener. Mm -hmm. I kept the doorbell, but she actually wanted to replace it with a different doorbell. So, yeah, that makes sense because it depends on the the platform, the hub, or whatever that they may want to use or already have. And I kept the smart locks in there for them as well. Mm -hmm. So, those are the things. I went through a move as well, about a little longer time in the past than when you moved. Mine was three and a half years ago. I pretty much did the same thing. Anything that was wired, I left. You know, so my Nest thermostat stayed, for example. I didn't have smart switches and I still really don't have any. And this is one of the reasons it's so much easier to replace a smart bulb than it is a switch. So I didn't have that problem. And, but I would have left switches in if, as you did, Stacey, if, if I had them. I had a bunch of cameras and to be honest, they're easy to leave, but they're, and they're easy to take out. So it's kind of a, what do I do with them? Frankly, I took them out and took them with me because I don't think a homeowner would. Yeah, they wouldn't feel, feel comfortable. comfortable. Exactly. It's, it's the same reason you change your front door locks when you buy a new house, right? You don't know who had the keys. You certainly the old owner does. What are, what are their friends and so on? So you and I know that, you know, if we leave cameras there, we're not going to like try and backdoor into our old cameras or whatnot, but not everybody realizes that they may think it's a potential privacy risk. So I didn't even want to bring that up because that's a negative thing and, or could be. So I took those with me too. And when you're showing the house, you may want to take the cameras out just because, I mean, you might want to leave them in to see what people are doing, but <laughs> it, it is a little creepy because I, exactly even right now, like when we're looking at houses, I'm like, oh, gross, cameras. Um, <laughs> but yet you have them. <laughs> I actually don't. I, I mean, I have cameras, but they're not like even the wise camera that I have is, is facing out. So ah. I don't have any facing in. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> That's how I feel about that. So the other thing you need to know, Rodney, is... I had to give a list to my realtor and whatever was on that list was going to convey with the house. So think long and hard when you make that list. And then if they had wanted it and they didn't want it, I was able to provide documentation for all of that. And I, I was just going to say, add documentation or provide it so that way they know how to change passwords or update devices or connect to their Wi-Fi 
make it as easy as possible for them if you're going to keep devices in there. Yeah. And every device that I kept in there worked without having to deal with the app. Even if they never decided to like work with the Nest thermostat, they could still change the temperature, right? Same with the Lutron lights. They worked even if you never activated anything. So that is my suggestion for you. And also remember, deauthenticate all of those devices. Deregister them, deauthenticate them. Yep. It's not fun. Wipe them clean. I'm like, you're not going to enjoy this. And remove the telnet from them too. Yes, take out the telnet. All right. Well, that concludes that. Remember, if you want to be entered to win, please call us and leave us a voicemail before October 31st. You will be entered to win a Wise Sense Kit and Wise Camera. And it is now time to move on to our guest. So stay tuned to hear Azar Hussein talking about new data models for tracking packages and a really cool product that I kind of want to play with right now. All that and more awaits you. But first, a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Nutanix. And I have Sachem Vagani here. So, Sachem, I associate Nutanix with hyperconverged infrastructure. But what is it specifically that you guys offer in the Internet of Things? Stacy, we've created an IoT application platform. It is called Xi IoT. And specifically, it's an edge computing offering that allows users to deploy modern IoT applications at the edge. It lets them manage these applications literally at planet scale from a central point of control. And last but not the least, it enables users to do data processing across the edge in the cloud for IoT use cases. So this week, let's talk about 5G and IoT. There's so much talk about that. So what do you make of all of it? 5G and IoT is fascinating because we see a potential inversion of the last mile problem. With 5G, we think we'll see so much bandwidth between the user and the base station that the bandwidth between the base station and the cloud is going to be the limiting factor. That opens up an immense opportunity for telecom providers to provide the equivalent of AWS on the 5G edge to power new applications around AR, VR, and so on. And so we, as Nutanix, are helping uh, some of these uh, telecom operators stand up that platform as a service layer on the 5G edge. And IoT tends to be an overwhelming undertaking. Are there ways to make IoT projects more accessible and successful across a wide range of customers? Indeed, it is overwhelming. You need to put together so many moving parts to even build a prototype and then think about topics like security and scale and data management to take it to production. And so what we have done is we've created this concept called IoT Application Library, where we enable ISVs and SIs to create end-to-end IoT applications and librify them, just like how we would librify our database into an installer. And so the net effect is uh, users can instantiate end-to-end IoT applications, just like how they install databases today. We want to make IoT as accessible as a smartphone app is today. And to do that, we want to solve two problems. One, we want to dramatically reduce the number of vendors and the number of moving parts that a customer needs to deal with to bring together an end-to-end IoT solution. And we at Nutanix do this through a concept called the IoT App Library. And number two, we want to enable end users to instantiate dramatically impactful and complicated IoT applications end-to-end, all the way from sensors to the edge to the cloud in one click. 
Excellent. And if people want to find out more about Nutanix, where should they go? Stacy, I'd like to invite your listeners to come visit us at Nutanix.com slash IoT and sign up for a free trial. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Azar Hussein, who is founder of Henha. Hi, Azar. How are you doing today? Hi, Stacey. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, I am super excited. Guys, we have been planning this for a really long time, so it's going to be amazing. What is it that you guys are doing? So Hanha has been, we've been around for about almost 1600 days. We have a day count. So we're entering our fourth year and everything we've done is being created in, that, in those four years. And we have three product lines uh, in particular that we've gone out to market with. The first one is now operationalized. It's called Parcel Life. And essentially what Parcel Life is a subscription service for supply chain companies, uh, people who want to manage where their stuff is as it travels through the world. And the way it works is people subscribe to the service. As part of the service subscription, they receive a tag, which is branded and delivered at the point of dispatch anywhere in the world. They put the tag into the asset they want to track. And the tag has got a whole range of sensors inside it. And it also has a cellular connectivity as well. And it has an e-ink display on the front. And it's all wrapped up. It looks like a postcard. If you imagine a postcard, maybe four or five millimeters thick, that's what it is. As the asset travels through the world, you're getting live insights of not only where it is, but has somebody opened it, dropped it? Are they walking with it? upside down? Are they, uh, what is the temperature? What is the humidity? Is it on a plane, off a plane? A whole range of stuff. You get all that data back in a whole very smart way, we like to think. But when the asset arrives at its destination, you take the tag out and essentially it works out where it is in the world and it creates its own return label dynamically on the display. And you take that tag and you typically put it into the mailbox of the country that you receive the goods in. It uses the global postal networks as a kind of an autopilot come home system. So the tag then works its way through the global network and it arrives at one of our two recycling points, one in Chicago and one in Venlo in, in the Netherlands. And from there, they're recycled and given to new customers. In the meantime, the original shipper gets fresh tags as part of their subscription. So there is no selling of hardware. There's no ownership of, of any of that to our end customer. The whole thing is delivered as a ready-to-go service for which they just get the insights, which is really what they're buying into. And that's parcel life. Okay. And the insights there are location and state of the package. Well, the problem we're trying to address, actually, if I may say, is a more deeper one. The amount of stuff we're shipping now is so much that the value of understanding where any one thing is, is actually diminishing. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I'm a, I don't know, a $20 billion company and I'm shipping a lot of stuff to make up that $20 billion in revenue, for example, then the first thing that comes along might be a million dollar computer. And the next thing that comes along might be a $10 box of cables. But actually, both of those things are equally irrelevant in the context of my 20 billion. And what we're finding is our customers are shipping out so much every day, every week, every month, that actually they're overwhelmed with data. So the question we try and help them answer isn't, where is your thing? Because you can't really scale the answer to that question. The question we help them answer is, why isn't my thing where it's meant to be? Because if you answer that question, you then no longer need to really figure out where everything is because it will be where it's meant to be. And when you're shipping a lot of stuff, making sure everything is where it's meant to be is more valuable than knowing where everything is. And that is a more sophisticated 
approach to really understanding how to diagnose challenges at a scale and in a timeliness across a supply chain, which is, you know, typically a huge amount of it is outsourced to all kinds of people who have all kinds of different standards in all parts of the world. To do that in, in a meaningful way, Parcel Live really fills that gap. So for the next generation of supply chain, it's more of a, more of a different approach to it. That's fascinating. And are your customers, do you go to them with this proposition or do they come to you with this proposition? How sophisticated are your customers when they're thinking about this? So what we have found with our customers is, we talk about this often, I I often feel like customers are a little bit like a, a blind guy with a stick. They're, they're going through the world, they're banging away at stuff and you know, they're trying to figure out they are here, they are there and is there anything in front of them. And then we come along and I feel we give them IMAX. And suddenly you've had a a person who's been experiencing the world through (laughs) a cane and now suddenly they get IMAX and we find they're overwhelmed with the data we give them. So we're now, we're trying to figure out better ways of communicating what's happening because I think we give too much data out to our customers. At least I personally feel that. Our customer sophistication is really within a framework of the tools they think they have today. But once they have more sophisticated tools, their approach to problems and challenges become more sophisticated. What Parcel Live is doing is that it's combining technology, um, operations, commercials, and wrapping it into a service that's accessible at a scale that has never been possible before. And because you can now access that scale, it it means you can see the world in a way you were never able to see before. And that therefore leads you to ask more sophisticated questions, which can deliver you more sophisticated answers. You're right. And I remember very vividly sitting in an operation center operated by Flex, the contract manufacturing company. And it is this massive room with clearly designed for like media and executive consumption, but it was beautifully designed. And it was just screens of data about weather events, about shipping statements, about factory operations. And it was very impressive, but it was very difficult to parse what was coming in on that and say, oh, there's going to be a weather event in Mexico that's going to shut down our plant. So I see where you're going with this. I think it's exciting. You did at first, though, mention that you had three products. So I want to make sure I understand what your three products are. So the second product we have is a product called Simisa, which generation one of that product just come on stream this year, which is in partnership with Microsoft. And what that product does, it, it starts with Excel, but it allows you to connect hardware into Excel. So you can open up a spreadsheet, type in the name of a sensor, And the data from that sensor from anywhere in the world will appear in your spreadsheet cell. Holy mackerel. Yes, and it works. And it's live today. And if you go to Office add-ins, type in Symbisa, there's a plugin there. You can download the plugin. There's a piece of hardware that you can uh, obtain, which gives you the first set of sensor arrays. It's a sensor array with a bunch of sensors on it. And you can see temperature, location, humidity. And it also has a label there that you can send from your spreadsheet to that device, text message, or you can send a barcode, for example, and you can create all of that from within Excel. And what that does practically is that it creates a two-way interface between the physical world and your spreadsheet. And the reason why that's important is because it really lowers the skill required to engage. So the problem we've really identified is oftentimes in life and in companies and just generally, the person with the problem 
doesn't always have the skills to solve that problem, then may not necessarily have the budget to solve that problem. So then the person with the problem has to go and find the person with the money, convince them to do the thing, to back them all that budget. And then that, that person with the money and the problem have to go and find a person with the skills to find a solution. And by the time all that has happened, it's like a year has gone by or two years have gone by. And if the pain of solving the problem is higher than the problem itself, you just kind of suck it up. And we feel IoT is a lot like that. Uh, so what this does, it says, look, if you can work a spreadsheet, you can now create quite sophisticated workflow just using if, this, then, using normal spreadsheet lingo, and you can interface with hardware and the hardware will respond to you. And you can send messages to the hardware to make a change or do a read or do this or do that without any complexity. And if you want to share that that data with somebody else, we'll just email them a spreadsheet. And when they open up the spreadsheet, they'll get all the data you just saw. So that's Symbisa. And we were now working on Gen 2 of that product, which also brings in things like user profiles and the ability to say, I'm an admin and you are a user. Therefore, I can see and do different things to what you can see or do. And our third product now is what we call Hanhai XG, where we have managed, thanks to the UK government, we were able to get a license to get our own mobile network up and running. So we now run our own GSM core. So we have our own tech in-house where we manage all our own connectivity, all our own signaling. And there's a new technology that's just coming into the market now called EUICC, which what that does, it, it moves the SIM the SIM card that you have in your phone from a, a plastic concept with a bit of hardware to a virtual concept. And the reason why that's important for us, what we're now starting to do is as our devices travel across the world, they localize themselves onto the operator in that country. So when they arrive in the US, they'll become an American device. When that shipment then goes to India, it becomes an Indian device. When it goes to China, it becomes a Chinese device. And that's important for two reasons. One, it there's a, obviously a commercial benefit because we kind of get away from a lot of the roaming issues that are kind of baked into the way the networks work today around costs and commercials. The second thing is you get a different level of service agreement, what you can do on the network, what security you can apply, how you can manage what happens to your device. So one of the things that we have in our system is Hanha has its own access point node or APN on the global network. And what that means practically is none of our devices are on the public IP backbone. So they don't have public addresses they're not really scannable or seeable from the outside world. The device talks to the modem, which is hard locked to a particular destination on the web. And that destination is closed loop. So the device won't talk to anybody that doesn't come from that destination. And that destination can't talk to anybody but that device, as it were. There's a tunnel that's hardened. So it means from the sensor all the way back to our customers, all the data is behind a cloud of security and uh, and performance that, that helps all that. And we're now moving into a 5G version of that of that whole proposition. Uh, one of the things that we big believers in is that in the 5G world, there really won't be any need for a Wi-Fi. So we think Wi-Fi is probably on its way out. <laughs> I suspect, uh, in a decade or so. I feel like I would take money on that simply because depending on your connectivity for 5G, most like in the US, they're using 5G to backhaul into a place and use Wi-Fi within the place. Right. But what you'll then have is you'll have 5G within the local environment. So instead of having a Wi-Fi hotspot, you'll just have a 5G hotspot. And, and the reason why all of that we think will go is really one of security, one of billing and authentication. We don't really see a world where you power on 
and you do anything but get online. This whole concept of username, passwords, Wi-Fi keys, all this kind of stuff, this is really from a previous era. This won't be the future. The future will be you power on your online. And for all of that to happen, there needs to be end-to-end security, authentication, all that kind of stuff. And you can't really rely on people's Wi-Fi spots to be part of that chain. And the way 5G works, the way the spectrum allocation works, and, and again, not to get bogged down in the weeds, you can create some very intelligent, very smart frequency management. So you can do, let's say, 5G spots in a way you will never been able to do before. But anyway, that's a, that's a, a whole other discussion. I was like, that's a fascinating discussion. All right. Well, okay, this is a lot to have done in four years. I am very impressed or in, in 1,600 days, as it were. So how did you build this? What is your history as a company? So we were super lucky. We had a bunch of angels out of Spain who gave us a first bunch of money to get going back in 2015. And off the back of that, we built a version one of our thing, which totally failed. <laughs> But we learned a lot. Having spent that money, there was enough there to build a version two. And then we were lucky enough to get some investment in from a large paper company up in Sweden who supported us through 2017. And essentially then we got the product out into the market last summer. Well, not out, no, we started operationing ourselves and getting delivery of the tags in 2018. So this year is our first full year of getting the tags out in the market. So it's been a kind of a, a journey from from there to here. And the Microsoft thing has taken two years, two and a half years to get going. Uh, some of the things I'm explaining to you is, is really the end frame, if you like, of a much longer movie. And there is an amount of complexity behind all of this, which we've absorbed, but that has meant it has to be managed and dealt and built. And the end result to our customer, we hope, is a super elegant experience but it's taken us a lot of a long time to get this. And there's a combination of regulatory, technical, uh, commercial, uh, innovation on a bunch of different fronts to really make all this work. I agree. I see this every day. I talk to people who are like implementing some sort of IoT project and it takes them far longer, costs them more, or it just does less because they're like, mm, we couldn't quite figure this part out. It is not surprising that it has taken you this long. It's actually surprising that you you actually have something at this point. Let's talk briefly, because building a postcard-sized device with the network connectivity and the ability to work anywhere in the world, and it's recyclable? I'm assuming recyclable, as in you can flash it and reuse it. But given all of this, this seems like a really expensive, difficult piece of hardware. What were your challenges in building that? So from the outset, we agreed we would not make anything disposable. We see no value or market or actually, frankly, good corporate to have anything disposable. So we had to build in the recyclability upfront, both from a business and from an engineering perspective. Uh, so the benefit of that to our customers, and, and by the way, uh, side adjunct to that, for our service to be relevant to our customers, the, the amount they have to engage with in terms of the number of things they have to track is so much that it, let's take cost that, uh, away as an issue. Let's say all these tags were worth a cent or they weren't they, they were free. Even if you give the tags away for free, the practicalities of having them disposable where they end up in landfill all across the world, creating all kinds of havoc and damage, it's just not real. And it's 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 not sustainable and it wasn't really where we wanted to go. So we built in the recycling of it from day one as part of the business operations. So a huge amount of my cost and energy and effort has gone into 
doing deals with postal operators, creating these stamps that work everywhere. And actually, the other big piece that we did, we spent a lot of time developing the radio side of it. And in particular, I think, shout out to TE Connectivity for really helping us with that. TE is a, a big, massive corporation, Tyco Electronics, formerly, but, and TE Connectivity really customized the RF. So they built us an RF package where they worked with us in the design phase. We actually redesigned the board. We checked the materials. They gave us actually these super duper labs out in California where we did a lot of fine tuning. But what it means practically is our tags have some of the best performance of passive radio anywhere in the world. We can now actually see, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, we can see in single story buildings, you can see a package move through the building. And and remember, the, the tag is inside a box, which might be inside a container being wheeled through inside a building around lots of machines, and we're still getting a GPS fix. And that is really a testimony to the, to the help that we got from people like TE to help us uh, make that work. So do you have advice for anyone who is building a startup or maybe just trying to work with these ginormous corporations? How do you come forward and do it well? Candidly, first thing is be lucky. Gotta be honest with you, that has to be the first one. Be lucky. There is a this is a ginormous industry and there's a there's a famous saying about um big and small, which is uh, when the big guy tries to shake the small guy's hand, they still break their own. And I feel it's a little bit like that with these ginormous companies. So you need to find a good conduit. And a good area of that is often maybe if you can find a good distributor who can help you with, with all of that. They sometimes have relationships to, to kind of get you up through the corporate structure. And the other thing is to bring them in early, if for no other reason that all the proof points you're giving them are in the future. So <laughs> if they buy into the idea, they will come and, and support you. And they're all looking for the next big thing, the next iPhone, the next this, the next that. They've got to sell more stuff. And if they can help, that each of them have a variety of systems to kind of engage with, but you need to be sponsored in. So that would be my tip. Find the right person who believes in your vision, who buys into you more than just as a purchase order and and they can open doors for you that you didn't even know existed like in my case i didn't even know about these labs so i wouldn't even have known to ask for these things had the other side not offered to take us there themselves so those are the kind of relationships you need awesome all right well azar thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you that's it for this week thanks so much for listening and remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.